0: Hello everyone, this is Nick, and welcome back to the film score. Today, my guest is Michael Price. Now, you might be most familiar with Michael through his work with David Arnold, scoring shows such as Sherlock and the miniseries or limited series Dracula. He's also done the hit UK show Unforgotten, which is still ongoing, and I think wrapping up filming or post-production on maybe its fifth season now. Michael's also actually had a really long and varied career in film music, cutting his teeth for five years with Michael Kamen, starting on the cult classic sci-fi horror film Event Horizon. But today, we're talking about a few of those projects, some of his history, his background, as well as his relatively new album, Whitson. Michael's had several solo releases to date and Whitson probably, and I don't think he'd argue with this, although I won't put words in his mouth, is his most intimate release to date. It is really minimal in its instrumentation, relying on a, an unacorda piano, single chord piano, some trumpet, some synthesizers, and a few other pieces to kind of recreate or reimagine his childhood in Yorkshire. And it does actually get to some, surprisingly at least for this show, personal intimate moments. Kind of a nice change of pace from some of the more typical film music conversations we have on here. It's a great interview and I think you'll enjoy it. In addition, my friend and very early guest, Blake Fischera, who I think is the only non-composer guest I've had on the show, is running a Kickstarter for a documentary he's planning on making about horror music. And it features some of the biggest names in horror music over the years. That's Scored to Death, the Dark Art of Scary Movie Music. Highly recommend checking that out, giving a pledge if you can, and also checking out some of Blake's horror composer interview books. They're really great. Now, sit back and I hope you enjoy. Michael I'm I'm so glad you could join me today how have you been Uh yeah very good um
1: there's a sort of a a, a certain crazed intensity about uh, living in in England at the moment the 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 rolling news cycle seems to be rolling ever faster but um I'm uh, quite busy at the moment so so I I guess like a lot of composers and and a lot of people who who might be listening we we kind of isolate ourselves off in our in our studios in our rooms and just keep our heads down seems to be the the best way to carry on
0: yeah absolutely and i've got to say i i seem to have just heard a constant stream of negative news out of the uk since i don't know what was in may of 2016 so
1: oh yeah i mean almost all self-inflicted as well like we're so repeatedly punching ourselves in the face.
0: God bless. God bless the world. But at least you're able to isolate yourself a little bit and, and hopefully That's tune right. some of that out. So what sort of things have you been working on? And, and I know that maybe if some of it's film, TV related, maybe it's too early to, to give any juicy details.
1: Talking to film and TV composers, I, I always think is a sort of, you know, sometimes a thankless task, sometimes like <laughs> slightly fruitless in, in that you're absolutely right when, when you're on something, particularly if it's a new something that isn't a sort of a continuing series then then you're almost always locked into slightly complicated non-disclosure agreements under under uh, pain of excommunication in terms of actually sort of saying too much but actually where I'm at at the moment is is slightly different in that one of the facets of the last maybe 10-15 years with the writing that I do is that TV by not particularly by choice rather than film at but I've been lucky enough to be involved in some TV series that I've, that I've run. And, and you never know when you, when you start, when you see the first sort of maybe an assembly cut or you see a pilot episode, everybody's wise with hindsight, but at the time when you first see it, nobody knows whether it's going to be good. You're, You're sort of, you're, you're, filled with enthusiasm because that that really should be your sort of default state anyway so you know it's it's great whatever it is I'm happy to see it and happy to to make a start but there's this sort of alignment of stars a sort of constellation that has to happen really for for a tv show particularly to really capture the imagination of uh, of people who, who would watch it to such an extent that they would want another series and then another series after that, and then another series and and, and for it to keep running. And that sort of enthusiasm from the audience has to be matched by the continuing availability of the main cast of Mm. of the showrunners, the writers, the execs, the composers, everybody involved. And so what I have on my desk, literally sort of in front of me, if you turn the (laughs) camera round or whichever point it downwards is a, a UK show called Unforgotten and and we're just working on series five of that right now and Unforgotten for me has been um something uh, you, can, you can find it on Netflix for non-UK viewers. It's, a, it's a, both a beautiful show in its own right, it's a very kind of understated human show where the two main detectives solve uh, sort of historic murders but it's much less about the sort of procedure and, the, and and sort of car chases as it is about people. Hmm. And from I think it's seven or eight years ago that we started on this particular series, I had uh, long, tortuous discussions and and many versions of, of of trying ideas for the producers and the creators of the show, while we tried to find a musical language which was really weighted towards the emotional side and and towards framing everybody whatever they might have done whether they were did in fact turn out to be a ghastly murderer or whether they were sort of just troubled people to frame them with with a kind of with musical dignity in a way and respect And, and so the musical language for the show has ended up being very close to I think probably my kind of um Native tongue, if you'd like, my sort of natural musical language with strings and amazing cellist Peter Gregson playing this mm-hmm. these sort of soaring cello lines and me playing the piano it's It's very sort of very much a language I'm comfortable in, but having said all all of that and and it's one of the favorite projects I think I've ever done, there's still six hours of t v to do quite <laughs> quite quickly so even though we all know each other really well and it's been the same director for every frame, Andy Wilson, who's amazing, and the same showrunner, the same team, there still comes a point when you do have to place your arse in the chair, if you've found the expression, and, and work on the episodes. And that's where I'm at right now. I think as we speak, I am just about to start episode five of six, so okay. two thirds of the way through.
0: Nice. And so with a project like that, or a project like Sherlock that ran for four seasons, and I don't know, what is it, three or four hour long episodes a season, I think?
1: Yeah, I mean, that that had, in a way, sort of uh, originated a slightly new format of three ninety minute episodes. 90, so that's right. So they really were kind of, everybody likes to think that their TV shows are feature films, but practically speaking, <laughs> like it's sort of, you know, when they are 90 minute episodes, they, they kind of are.
0: But at, but at least, unlike other, you know, more recent shows, those hit the, the timing that we're all used to, rather than it being a movie stretched out over eight hours. Yeah. But when you're doing those longer-running series, how does your approach change over time? I mean, you mentioned earlier how things get more obvious with hindsight, and I'm sure if you knew something was going to be five series, you'd have a different approach and you'd set little thematic Easter eggs and motifs to build out, but you have no idea at the beginning. So how does that approach Something. change as it goes?
1: Uh, it's a fascinating question. And, uh, um, and my experience of it has, has been one of discovery, really, each time. So with Sherlock, um, that David Arden and I score together and have, had the most amazing run of almost 10 years on on that show, we discovered... I think between us, how we felt Sherlock sounded with the Benedict and Martin on screen as they were. In fact, right way back there, there is a pilot episode, pre-season one, of Sherlock, which is available. Or I think you can find it on online in <laughs> in all the usual places, <laughs> and uh, and and that was it's was a, a one-hour episode. Different director, didn't have the whizzy graphics, Didn't was sort of like a, a true pilot. And David and I, we were brought in just to kind of have a look at that. We both knew Mark Gatiss and Stephen Moffat from other projects. I don't even think when we went into the room that we thought we were going to write anything. I thought it was a, do you want to watch this pilot and give us any ideas kind of <laughs> chat, really. And then David and I went to the pub as is traditional and Sort of somehow agreed to. Oh, well, we'll just do a pass for you in a in a week. We'll just throw some things at it, see see how you feel. So we went and did a just did a week on it. I think maybe a, two weeks. No recording. It was just all on the sense and sent it back to them, and didn't hear anything for about a year, maybe, oh, maybe wow. more. Eighteen months. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay, <laughs> that went well then. <laughs> and. um and then we we found out that they'd sort of gone back to the drawing board, reshot it, reworked as these three ninety-minute episodes that we talked about, and they had a different director in in place then. And then we saw the first real episode, if you like, the first episode that was going to be broadcast, and it's the same story as the pilot episode. So it's it's an uh, incredible if you're sort of interested as as I am in in the way that. Films and TV are, are put together. It's a it's an amazing A B to have mm. to see why one is very successful and the other didn't quite hit the mark. But long and short of it, that first pass that Dave and I had done on the pilot episode seemed to contain almost everything that we needed for the first <laughs> season of of Sherlock. Of course, we jazzed it up a bit right. and uh, you know recorded it and and tried to make it really work. But but conceptually, a lot of those first impressions. Were the sort of the seed of the language. What then happened with Sherlock, uh, which is different to how Unforgotten has worked out, is that as Stephen Moffat and Mark Gates's imaginations grew and the scale of the stories grew and the sort of you know ever more kind of almost operatic sense of, w- of what was what was going on with Sherlock as it progressed through the, through the different series, David and I found ourselves. Just trying to go with that. And so consequently, the score, if you kind of A, B, a cue from the like season four towards the end of that with a season one cue, it's so much bigger by the end. <laughs> you know, we were, we were throwing everything we'd got at it. Not just because we could, but because the show seemed to respond to it. Everything was at such a high level of drama that really sort of intense... Music making seemed seemed to really suit it, and so in a way, with Sherlock, there was a sort of a a constant expansion. I'm not, I'm not quite sure where it would have gone if if there ever is a season five. I'll be the last, I'll be the last to know. But if there, if there ever was some more Sherlock, like I, it felt like I'm not sure we could, could get any bigger. Unforgotten, which as I mentioned, we're on season five of that now, is is very different because with the first season, I I thought I was writing character themes. As you mentioned, you sort of imagined that you would kind of attach themes to either the sort of your main your yeah. leads or to individual sort of subsidiary characters as they come along, and that's what I thought I was doing for season one. And then we came to season two, and I thought, well, maybe I can keep these tunes for the leads, but have a whole new set of tunes for the the other subsidiary characters. But as we as we tried it, it felt like we were losing something of the essence of the show, and and so we sort of went back I went back with the with the producers to some of the earlier material and and we tried it up against season two, against sort of different people. And it was like, oh, actually these aren't <laughs> character themes, these are concept themes. These are things ideas. And so they're there's things like hope or despair or anger or optimism or you know, that they're much more about the universality of an emotion than they are about that particular character on that particular day that they had to feel it once in order for us to have you know write that cue and have have that feeling but what we've then done subsequently is sort of build a musical language which almost by by repetition obviously it changes and evolves to a certain extent but by repetition you build these sort of these fascinating lines of connection between other characters in the same series that you might not necessarily make that connection with or even back through the series Mm -hmm. because you're really saying people feel a very common set of emotions even people who are in the most different of circumstances you know sort of uh, someone who's homeless on the street someone who is a, a lord in the in parliament a multimillionaire down, down to somebody you know doing a cleaning job actually it's their humanity that's kind of common between them and it's been a really eye opening sense of how to construct just what you were saying you know how do you how do you construct these long long arcs in that i think those two shows both of which have run run for similar periods of time i think are constructed in really different different ways which makes it still fascinating every year to come back to to unforgotten
0: Hmm. very interesting and and i guess that that does go back to something that you said right at the beginning talking about how the show itself is much more about characters and emotion in particular And, and it turns out that that was the natural way for the music to be approaching it too.
1: Totally, and if if I'm trying to appear clever in an interview, which is clearly not this one, <laughs> I will tell you that that's what I thought right at the start of series one. That I know how this is all going to go. This is exactly, but no, it's it's a process of discovery and being open enough. I I think maybe and and if we talk about some of the projects that I was involved in sort of earlier in in my career, I think maybe one of the the differences that I notice in myself now, and I'm considerably longer in the tooth, is a an openness to fail and to not know the right answer, which is slightly counterintuitive in that you, you, you sort of think, maybe after all these years in, in the industry, you would either want to project that you know the right answer or perhaps experience, you know, feel that you do know the right answer. And one of the continuing joys, I think, of sort of carrying on working is feeling comfortable enough and i guess that's where the confidence or experience gets me is to feel confident enough to be vulnerable which is sort of a great state to be in i say i don't know in sporting sessions and in review meetings like 10 times as much as i as I would have done when I was 30.
0: <laughs> and I think that's a natural progression, or at least I, I hope that it is for most people, where as you get more knowledgeable and experienced, you realize in a lot of instances, it's it's okay to not know something or to go, oh, I thought this was going to work, but you know what? It doesn't, and we need to reevaluate. I mean, and so obviously part of being the opposite when you're younger is just kind of that that confidence of youth but do you think part of it is also a necessary aspect of when you're a, a younger composer working in media because there are only so many projects and it it seems like such a competitive, tough industry to break into that if you show weakness in your first, second, third project, maybe people will get the wrong idea about you.
1: I, I think you're absolutely right, but I, I think it's more driven by terror than it is by <laughs> anything else. I remember... Th- visceral feelings of fear early on (laughs) just not just passing sort of sensations of minor nerves but you know those proper i'm about to be sick (laughs) i feel i haven't slept for days and weeks this is and i mean for me my route i think was one that i i still see people going on similar paths now but but also as in that i was an assistant First of all, to to, uh, the late great Michael Kamen for for five years. For anybody who's who's enjoyed Michael Kamen's scale, scores over the years, I was I started with the first X Men film and a film called uh, Event Horizon. That was my first day on the job It's a very dark sci fi film. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> a, yes, a cult classic. Now I'm not I'm not sure if it qualifies. Uh, so I started at that end and went through to Band of Brothers. That was the uh, mm-hmm. the last project I did with Michael. One of the things that 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 experience of those five years did show me or uh, allowed me to participate in was this sense of extraordinary freedom that Michael allowed himself, which could be quite frustrating if you were the one who was trying to organize everything and get it, <laughs> get it all to happen. But Michael's sort of re- refused in, in many and complicated ways to sort of be tied down to, to, they doing a score the the expected way or to go by the time constraints we might might be under at the time. I I think when when I started when I start working with him and that was to continue with my own writing. I found myself sort of with a slightly overdeveloped skill set of keeping complicated film scores together without them collapsing. That was slightly more overdeveloped than than i think where i was as a a writer at the time so so i ended up accidentally doing five years of music editing as well because i i had this experience then of of working on these really big scores so for for instance i ended up sort of music editing all three lord of the rings films and really uh, yeah so again absolutely accidentally in that some of my good friends were down at Abbey Road in the studio there that I'd met while working with Michael Kamen and they just needed an extra pair of hands for six weeks so they said just because they were crewing up for the first Lord of the Rings film and as is always the case it's never six weeks so we did the first film it was an extraordinary sort of technical flurry obviously Howard was amazing sort of legendary score but the film was changing all the time until mm. right at the last minute you know it's, all the usual things. Um, and then it turned out that there was there were going to be extended versions of each of the Lord of the Rings films <laughs> that had like 45 minutes of extra scenes in them. Did they? How's the music going to work for that? Um, so myself and a, and a wonderful team of people ended up working as a music edit team over all three films and all three extended directors' versions. And also I, uh, in between, managed to end up music editing love actually and bridget jones too and a bunch of romantic comedies <laughs> <laughs> but again un- unknown reasons but i i think for me part of part of that was that that's my kind of practical sense of, of of how to get something across the line was getting a good solid workout most of the time and and i wasn't really letting myself take the time to develop my writing in in mm. that same sense and 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 so after I'd worked with Alfonso Cuarón on *Children of Men* for a year, which is as I think a stone cold masterpiece, it's a beautiful, beautiful film. Absolutely. I decided to I couldn't hold the music editing or sort of score production in in balance with with writing anymore, and and I had to sort of draw a line under under music editing. And it was an amazing film to to broadly be the last one that I did. And then it was it was fascinating to to then try and fill the space in a different way than being just the person. I mean, I know some amazing music editors and score producers who are you know, great artists in their own right, but there's a, there's a certain sort of characteristic usually of, of people in that role, which it's about being calm under pressure. It's about being incredibly methodical and organised with a machine of many, many moving parts. I think part of what I took the opportunity to to let myself do perhaps in my 30s and into my 40s was let myself not be quite so organized (laughs) let myself not be quite so you know kind of eager to fix things down and and to play more and again sort of i don't think you can never generate the outcome or predict the outcome of something like that but but for me that coincided then with writing a lot more with David Arnold, who I who I'd met a few years before that, and I I I've sort of both been really grateful and enjoyed this sort of space. I think that that I've moved into.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and I I think it it makes sense as a as a progression too. There's a couple pieces I do want to jump on to in a moment. So oh, one sure. one is talking about oh, there's more than that, <laughs> um, but you know we we don't have five hours. Yeah. But I do want to ask really quick, and, you know, you mentioned it was your first day on the job working on Event Horizon. And, I mean, I, I do think that that truly has become, like, a cult classic, especially the last few years. And and interestingly, too, you know, I think the score also featured Orbital. I don't know if it was co-written or if if they were just separate cues. I don't remember. It's, it's been a while since I've seen it.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think collided with each other might be the <laughs> best response, <laughs> physically
0: as well as everything else. So does it surprise you that that movie has such a fervent following now? And I think as time goes on, it gets more and more popular and, and well regarded.
1: I wonder if it's films or TV or albums that take a really strong position that are really very themselves and at the time i think it's almost always too much it's like (laughs) what what is that why is that so off the scale in so many different ways but i think then as time passes and we we look back at films and albums books you don't really remember the ones that were just kind of safely yeah. what everybody else is doing at the time. Because why would you? They'd... And so there's, there's something, But I, I've got a very soft spot and obviously sort of, uh, you know, it was really the first Hollywood project that I ever was a tiny part of. But there is actually a, that little thought in there that I, that I do wonder about for projects or for my own work these days in that taking a really strong position you'll either be really right or really wrong. <laughs> and, I, <laughs> and I think that's, that's, that's a bit more fun, I think.
0: Yeah. Well, and, and I think, too, with that movie in particular, there's a mythology that's grown up about it that supposedly there are even more extreme cuts in footage that have disappeared or been lost, and it really gets people wondering, like, what else was there?
1: That, I mean, I, there's... Probably I shouldn't I shouldn't say this on the on the internet, but there's probably somewhere in a hard drive in my loft, like early versions that were working. In fact, I definitely shouldn't say that. It's not online. Can't hack me. And the, but I think there's there's this sort of, I mean, it touches on how how much of a strange and insular but also wonderful world it is being part of the production on a movie or or a TV show. In that there are certain ones where. And this, I often say this to, to younger composers or people who, who want to perhaps find themselves in a composer team or, and visit in a studio, and, is to say that the room that you're in, whether it's the studio for a session or the cutting room with the filmmakers, is absolutely or should be an incredibly safe space in that you want everybody in that room to feel that they can trust everybody else in that room so that they can say the wild thing, they can put that shot in that really shouldn't be, in, that they can try things. When that really works, when there's trust between the composer and the filmmaker, the filmmaker with their execs and the studio teams, you set the conditions that, it doesn't always produce exceptional results, but you set the conditions for it. Often when it doesn't work, and I've been part of a lot of shows, (laughs) a lot of films that have been fairly tense, it's because that trust has broken down, and, and I, I look for that in collaborators and and people to work with in all forms of my work. Now is is that I'm I, I like that atmosphere of trust.
0: It, it it makes absolute sense, and that's something that I I would want to talk about more. That collaborations generally, you know, working with David Arnold and and Peter Gregson, who I actually had on the show uh, about probably around this time last year to talk about his his uh, release for Patina. Oh,
1: amazing. Was he rude about me? He didn't even mention me at all. I, I, no,
0: he... I actually, I asked <laughs> if he knew you, and he's like, ah, never heard of him. Never liked it. <laughs> Love, Peter. And and maybe we can turn back to that at the end, sure. if we have time. However, I, I don't want to forget that you also have a new release out. Because it came out in, what, earlier mid-August, I think?
1: Yeah, I mean, we've been slightly... Uh, this is the album called Whitson. And um, I think the... And this touches on some of the things that we were that we've been talking about earlier. the The layers of vulnerability, the layers of private to public, the the different permissions that we all give ourselves have always fascinated me. We were talking about the sort of permission to even sort of strike out as a composer rather than a music editor, as a permission to to make albums, not just scores. Permission what permission you give yourself for what those albums might be. Before, I released two albums and, and an EP, in fact, a couple of EPs on a label called Erased Tapes, which I'd, I'd been part of a an ongoing exploration, really, about often they were to do with a sense of place. And I recorded the first album in Berlin, which was a great experience and actually sort of got a flat share and moved over there for a while while I was sort of working on it just really soak up the atmosphere. And then the second album I'd, I did in a, uh, it's called Tender Symmetry, I, di- I did in a, a series of uh, locations in the UK, sort of not studios, including some tunnels in the cliffs of Dover where Peter Gregson, the aforementioned cellist, <laughs> and I wore hard hats to, to be underground playing and recording in these tunnels trying to be under the ground. And Kieran, our lovely singer. That, if anybody wants to see humorous pictures of those, they're available on my Instagram. But what what I found myself returning to to the in this last year was that although those are fascinating projects that I was really keen on, also they were they were always at some distance from hmm. from me as a person. It's like I love Berlin, but it's not where I grew up. Like right. it's it's someone else's story, and it's a super cool story, and. All these different houses and different locations in the UK, they, they're really interesting, but they're not my story. So the origin of of Whitson was when we were clearing my granddad's house after he passed away quite a few years ago now, one of the members of the family found uh, a book of pictures of my mum, her baby book, from when hmm. she was clearly a baby. They somehow I think they were passed around. I'm not sure my mum wanted to, to keep them. They, they arrived on... On my desk, and one of the cousins said, oh, do you want to keep these? And looked at these and thought, these are amazing. So they're, it's a series of, of little sort of sepia pictures, photographs of, of my mum in the first couple of years. One particular little collection of them uh, taken on the beach at Scarborough in, in Yorkshire with my grandparents holding my mum between them when she's one. And you look at it and it looks like a perfect sort of nostalgic family shot on the on the beach but then the uh, handwritten date note underneath says i think it's july or august 1939 <laughs> so both literally and metaphorically because they were they're on the sort of uh, on the east coast of of england the second world war is just oh just out Jeez. of sight and yeah. they were looking in the direction of <laughs> of where what was going to be the sort of most significant world war in many ways that there's ever been and yet there was this innocence it was sort of like a one-year-old little girl and the, my granddad wearing amazing sort of trousers quite high up around his waist and everything that you'd hope for for a, a picture from the 1930s and so I sort of took this as a, as a starting point to, to make what what is in fact a really really personal album where they're sort of... I wasn't hiding behind any of the things that I usually hide behind which is other people's beautiful playing at orchestras and big studios and those sort of things. So I, so I played everything myself and I've got a piano called an Una corda piano which is a single stringed piano which has got a very distinctive sound it's a beautiful handmade thing where the strings are slightly thicker because there's just one of them and so it's there's an, almost a bell-like quality to it mm. and then uh, I have a slightly unnecessary collection of beautiful vintage synths as well so that (laughs) there's some vintage synths on it and some piano and a little bit of singing and, and some trumpet which is my the instrument i played all the way through school and and uni and in a way i i think that album available on all good streaming services and on cassette and various nostalgic forms for anybody's um i think i've sort of i mean again it's one of the things about sort of I guess, chatting to artists of any of any kinds in that normally our head is in the future, mm-hmm. thinking about what what we're going to do. And um, and sometimes the lead time of things that you've worked on are, are, are such that you're sort of trying to remember how you felt like one, two, three years ago. But I think for me, Whitson has, has been a sort of slightly cathartic process of sort of giving m- myself permission to be incredibly incredibly open and incredibly personal and incredibly vulnerable and simple it's very simple in many ways album not hiding behind sort of whatever orchestral technique I've got and so I'm now fascinated where next year will go from there really because I think the set of permissions that I've given that I've given myself are are much much wider now which is a a lovely free feeling
0: yeah well But I mean, I I do imagine it's got to be difficult making that decision in the first place, because talking about your childhood loss, things like that, that's not a that's not something that you bring up in the first five minutes of meeting someone or of small talk. Those are very personal things. And so to be able to pull some of that out and kind of bring it into the world has to be a difficult choice to make.
1: Uh, Yeah, no, it's terrifying. And and I think particularly for people who have been in the business of telling other people's stories, mm-hmm. and and I mean sometimes I, I I would say to someone I'm not sure why I ended up in sort of scoring films and and TV, and they would just look at me and laugh and they go well clearly because you're emotionally avoidant. And actually, although you really want to express things, but you're much happier when you're expressing things that one remove. Much happier when you're projecting into someone else's story. And actually, all that pent up, emotionally avoidant stuff that that you're carrying around with yourself is what lifts the music that I hope on a good day that I write for other people's stories. in, In that I sort of, and maybe sometimes too much but I really care I like I really care about what David and I did for Sherlock and Dracula Mm -hmm. and sometimes it's amazing and sometimes it you know the show doesn't go where you think it was and I care about the music that I write for Unforgotten in the moment when there's a character on screen and they're experiencing an emotion I, I sometimes feel that I'm doing a sort of not dissimilar job to the actors in that I'm sort of very present with what it is to to be that person at the at the time, and I think if you talk talk to actors i've I've got some lovely active friends now they're' I'm perfectly happy talking about everything else apart from really their sort of interior lives their their real selves they're happier in character because otherwise they wouldn't be actors <laughs> that's sort of <laughs> often there um uh, so so yeah it is it is very interesting to try and explore that side now but you know i'm a parent now we've got two beautiful children my own dad sadly died last year i'm in that period of time where i think it's sort of like yeah if you're not gonna do it now you're not (laughs) you're not gonna go there so uh so yeah i i kind of i think i'm gonna pull the plaster off a bit more see what's underneath
0: I had read about that, so and I know it happened last year. I'm I'm sorry to hear about your father. It's it is a tough thing to to go through.
1: Do you know it, It's both incredibly incredibly common place, and uniquely challenging. Yeah. I, I I think I understand. I, I you know had had so many other friends who've lost parents. You know had bereavements of all kinds, and I thought I knew. And I hoped I was empathetic, but it's kind of like, oh, okay, now I understand. Or I understand yeah. for me. I understand that it is unique for everyone. And I think I think that's what I've taken from it so far is that there's, you know, each person's bereavement or grief is so so specific that any sort of blanket statements about grief just don't don't really apply. But to to, to simultaneously be at that stage of life with Aging parents, and with I mean, we've got a two-year-old and a five-year-old in the house now, so I, I life is life is full right now in a very wonderful way.
0: It is an interesting way to phrase it, like that as well. Where where in that instance, where everyone's grief and bereavement is is unique in their own. The same thing had happened to me when I was a child, and so I can right. I empathize with people when that happens to them. But it's been however many years at this point. I have no idea what to say to somebody. Oh. And at the same time, I don't know. I I can't think about. Oh, I, if only someone would have said this to me, I'd have felt better. It's like we're all so siloed off in one regard. I
1: I think it's it's fascinating. It's an incredible still in sort of you know all, many parts of Western Western culture. An incredible taboo in that it's you know one of the few things. I mean. British people don't like talking about money either. <laughs> I mean, Americans are happier talking about that. Yeah. Basically, death and taxes. You know, nobody, nobody really wants to sort of approach them. And, and I think for me, my experience of trying to explain to to Emily, our our daughter, about death, just and because little kids just ask the questions. They mm-hmm. they they're not they're not holding back for fear of offence. So were just going to go, "Where's Granddad?" and Is he coming back? You know, all the sort of stuff that really kind of got a face up to. And yeah, so never any right or wrong things to say, but I think perhaps presence is always appreciated. Mm -hmm. And I think it's probably what I've learned.
0: Um, Yeah. Whether that is
1: silent presence (laughs) or (laughs) virtual. Uh, I think presence rather than absence.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think I think that's very good uh, advice on that regard. Somewhat similarly too. It's one thing to tell your children or your your, your grandchildren about your childhood, how things were growing up. You know, I, I had that experience a lot when I was younger. But that's a unique position now, to where you can have your kids listen to this and be like, "This is kind of my sonic." reimagining or, or nostalgia of my childhood and it's something that for pretty much the rest of us out there won't have that same experience so it's it's a an interesting gift you can give too
1: one of the things that we have found ourselves as a family doing we take i'm a bit of an amateur photographer so we we take <laughs> loads of pictures and videos on various formats unnecessarily expensive cameras and um actually what we're finding as a as a family is that music is one of the ways that we sort of communicate with each other Mm. so both the kids absolutely love making up songs dancing coming and sitting. i i we were talking about working from home earlier i i now work from home rather than being having a separate studio which is a a mixed blessing shall we say It's, it's a little less easy to concentrate sometimes but also marvelous to be around everyone and in a way, we're sort of, we don't think about it very much because it sort of uh, just is part of the air that we breathe, I think, right, around here. But it, it's sort of a way that we, an extra way that we communicate with each other. I've, I'm often fascinated by bilingual families or trilingual families who switch between languages as they're speaking to each other. They seem to have sort of some words in one language for certain situations and then they will sort of seamlessly switch into another language. And I think we as a family, we sort of do that with, with music as our second language. Mm. So we'll start singing things to each other, just like, what do you want for breakfast? I'd (laughs) like some toast. You know, and it sounds like some sort of dreadful kind of stage, like one of those episodes from Glee that you really hoped wasn't (laughs) going to happen. But actually what it sort of then has this fascinating sort of connection, you know, I... I don't know whether either the kids will want to make music their career. I I secretly hope they don't. Really, <laughs> it's fairly brutal, but I hope that they keep this the joy and spontane whatever they do keep the joy and spontaneity of having music as a as a language. And that is my profound hope for for anyone who's uh, who's listening, is that the innate joy of of making and participating in music doesn't cost anything the heart of it can't be commercialized It in itself is it's almost the purest expression of sort of joy and connection that that you can ever have and it's sort of so easy i mean i don't know what what your experience of this has been but for, for many people they would play as a child or play as a teenager or maybe even play through college but then life gets in the way and then they and then playing takes less you know there are other things that that we feel we should do but if just one person made a little moment to, to play something or sing for themselves or with, with someone else in their family or with a friend, just that tiny one act, I think, is joyful and worthwhile.
0: It is. And I would imagine there's not a single person or at least very few people who played as a kid or in college and then fell away who are happy about that, who are like, <laughs> you know what, not playing the piano never touching it again best decision of my life
1: nobody ever says that at a party do it and like I mean, <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it, it's it's something you know once in a while um you know if you are in a sort of social situation it's always the thing sort of, not to mention but if somebody says say well, what do you do you just got to go i sell insurance just because if you say, if you say that you're a musician or a, you're a composer for some people it, it lands really tough for them because mm-hmm. they kinda of go, I loved playing XYZ, whatever the yeah. instrument was. I loved singing and I don't do it anymore. And you and you spend the next twenty minutes with your sort of arm round them, feeding them <laughs> wine, go it's gonna be okay. You just sing some show tunes, it's gonna be good.
0: <laughs> well, on, on that note, Michael and I realize we're we're getting close to uh to time. I'll I'll release you. Oh,
1: a joy to talk <laughs> to you, though. What a joy!
0: No, it was it was great, and I I really do appreciate I appreciate your time. I appreciate you coming on. Great to chat, and I've I've spun Witson quite a few times. It's a it's a very good oh. listen. I'd recommend it to everyone. Thank you so much. Well,
1: thanks. you, and and to to anyone if you do find yourself playing or singing, send me a note on Twitter. Cheer us both up. That's what I think we should do. <laughs>